uh, let us begin with prayer. Father God, thank you for your amazing love. May we never doubt your love, Lord, for your love is true, certain, and, and truly proven for what you've done for us. And I pray that we will certainly be all that we can be to serve you, to love others, and make your love known to others. Thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Does a person's view of what it means to be human influence their ethical decision-making? I actually did a study on this in a university about how do other people view others in regard, based on their ethical decision, how is they, is it, and what is the foundation of that? So John Evans, a sociologist at the University of California, San Diego, oh yeah, a few San Diego there, <laughs> analyzed data from 3,500 U.S. adults in order to find out that question. The results, those who believed humans bear the image of God held more humanitarian attitudes than those who did not. The more that respondents agreed with the purely biological definition of a human, the less likely they were to view people as special. They were less willing to stop genocide and more likely to accept the ideas of buying kidneys, suicide to save money, and taking blood from prisoners. By comparison, those who believed humans are made in the image of God were less likely to agree with money-saving Suicide uh, or non-consensual blood donation. We're less likely to be. I hope I said that. The editor of New Scientist, where Evans' research was published, commented, if this preliminary result is upheld by further research, it will come as an unwelcome shock to scientific, scientific materialists. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For he is God, and when he created, he was like an orchestra conductor standing before the barren, formless earth, he raised his baton and called forth the sea, the land to exist and the sun to shine. He then looked at the ocean, the empty ocean, and a swoop uh, fish and sea creatures filled it up. The ocean exploded with life. In the air, God called forth the birds to fly. All kinds of birds began to form and fly. The sky was filled with squawking and chirping. A melody began to form, and the birds sang in gratitude to their creator. Then God looked at the earth and the vegetation and trees, but he raised his hands, and animals grew, insects flew, and all their kinds flourished. The noise of the earth continued as all the animals shouted in what voice they had, giving praise to God for life. Then God stopped knowing what he wanted to do. He said to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God took the dirt of the earth and he formed it into the shape of a man. He formed the bones, the organs, brains, eyes, nose, and ears. He shaped the mouth and carefully crafted the muscles and skin. As an artist, it was perfect. There was no life. It was just a statue, just a, a form of a man. But then he breathed into the man's nose, and the breath of God touched every area of his body, and the man became a living being. The breath of God touched everything, and he became that living being. 
And when this man came to, to life, he stood up, and I believe he praised God with this new vocal cord saying, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. The first words, I believe, were ones of praise and worship unto God. God told the man, and then, of course, he um, formed the woman. He took the rib out of, a, out of Adam and formed the woman. And I believe together they worshipped and praised God and gave him glory. God told the man, you're made in my image, meaning you're like me and how you are to act in my creation. You're to care for it as if you were me and you're to tend to it. You are to the steward, the manager of the land. The land does not belong to you. It is yours to use, but it is always mine. You may use it, but more importantly, you're to know me. The image of God gives you the means to know God, to follow after him, listen to him, and obey him. God created man in his image, male and female, to live and revealing to all creation the beauty of who God is, his nature and character. In Ephesians 4, it says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and of truth. And again in Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Be imitators of God. Act like him. And how does he act? He loves. To live out the image of God is to imitate God in how he loves and how he acts. But beyond this, it is to know God in relationship. God created you to know him. And when we don't know him, when we run from him, when we push him away, we're empty and struggling. We're lost in a quagmire of hopeless ideologies. Reality becomes jumbled and direction is wayward. Identity is lost and a counterfeit versions of the image of God are offered and they all fall short. When the man and woman... Adam and Eve sinned. They lost their understanding of the image. Their relationship with God was broken, and they were cast out. But God offers hope, salvation, and forgiveness. Christ was promised the day they sinned. And now Christ has come, and our salvation is known and sure. Our image and identity can now be restored. What was lost can now be found. Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new Creature, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are now, through Christ, able to live out the image that God originally created us to be. So I challenge us today, pursue the image of God. Live up to what God created you to be because Christ has died on the cross for your sins and he has risen from the dead. Live up to what he has called you to be because he has sent the Holy Spirit and he has empowered you to pursue his calling, and that calling is Christ living his life in you. Pursue what he has for you. Pursue what he has for you. Last year, in January, we began the Roman series, Romans 1, and we made it all the way to chapter 6, not in January, or not last December, <laughs> but kind of went through chapter 6. And so today I want to give a recap of our study looking back at Romans 6 to show the direction of Paul, the Apostle Paul's argument and the reason for his letter. 
just some preliminary statements about the letter. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. He had not been able to get to Rome in his church planting missionary journeys. In the book of Acts, he does finally, we do read about how he finally makes it to Rome, but not probably in the way that he had envisioned. He made it to Rome in chains. And he was sent there having to face, make his case before the Roman emperor Nero, which would not have been a very friendly person to make a case. His letter to the church in Rome was written prior to his arrival, and he knew of this church and probably some of the people. We do know that Aquila and Priscilla, uh, people that he had worked with in his missionary planting uh, mission, uh, he had, uh, they, they had lived in Rome, and they were actually had a home there. Well, Paul wrote this letter to discuss the gospel message he had been preaching, which is rooted in Scripture. It was not something he made up. The gospel was not something he made up. It was something that God did reveal, for it was clearly seen in the Old Testament. Christ reveals the mystery of the gospel that's in the Old Testament is finally revealed in Christ. He was not teaching anti-law or relaxed standards, but rather he was teaching the fulfillment of God's will found in our Lord Jesus Christ. He made known in his letter that Christ is what makes us able to fulfill the law of the Old Testament and to act and live righteously. We cannot in any way create righteousness necessary for God's requirement. You will never make it. Only faith in Christ and Christ alone. Paul began his letter describing the nature of humanity. There are none righteous. No, not one. Righteousness cannot be gained by any efforts. Cannot be gained by the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This righteousness can only be gained through faith in Christ Jesus. And this faith is available to all, not to a select few, but to the whole world. Christ is for the all peoples. This faith was demonstrated by Abraham when he believed in God, and God credited to his account righteousness. Because Paul, uh, Abraham believed God. He believed God. Only faith in God has been the means to gain righteousness. He is not preaching anything new, Paul is. The righteousness by faith is possible because Christ died for you, died for me. In Romans 5.8, we read that wonderful verse, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Never doubt his love for you. It is true and proven. That verse right there alone. If you had no other verse in the world and you found that verse, <laughs> that proves everything that his love is true and real. This righteousness is in contrast to the sin of humanity. The sin of humanity is rooted in Adam's sin in which we all inherit at birth. We're all born sinners. But now we can be born again, and Christ's righteousness can be given to us. In verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, For it is by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there results a condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there results a justification of life to all men. So the one sin, we're all condemned. But through Christ, we can be justified. We can be saved. 
when you come to faith in Christ and bow your knee in repentance of your sins before Christ, believing in the risen Savior, the once and for all act of God, of Christ, God then restores the image marred by sin. That image is Christ. In Romans 8, 29, we read these words. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, conformed to the image of his Son, so that we should be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is that image. Everything Christ did and said is how we're to live. Christ is the design God created us to be. He is the authentic human. We look at Christ and say, Christ, live your life in me. Pursue the image that God's given you. Number one, pursue the life of Christ. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Start with verse 1 there. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beautiful words, beautiful promises. In Paul's ministry and church planning, he was accused of saying, keep on sinning so grace may increase. But when grace is taught properly, this accusation people will make. You're teaching that you can keep on sinning so grace may increase. We keep, why keep sinning that grace may increase? This is the question that Paul begins with this in chapter. And he, he's probably not hearing it directly from someone, but from his mission planting trips, he's heard this accusation. And this, so this is why he begins with this chapter. Because if you look at verse 20 of chapter 5, it says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace, and basically what Paul is saying is God's grace cannot be outdone by our sin. And this can be a controversial statement. You may deem someone unfit to receive God's grace. Well, that person certainly doesn't, re- doesn't deserve to receive grace, but aren't we all unfit to receive His grace? <laughs> That's why it's grace. We must be given what God is offering because we will never discover it and we will never earn it. Grace may abound when sin increases, but does that mean we should keep on sinning so grace may increase? May it never be. Why live in the dirtiness of sin when you can live in the holiness of the transformed life? Why continue to live in the image of the world when you have been given and rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son? 
You have been given the original image that God created you. You are now a new creation. You've been set free from the tyrant called sin and welcomed into God's family. When you recognize what you have been given, you will celebrate. Pursue the image that God has given you and live up to your calling. First observation, celebrate the promises of God. Matthew 18, it's interesting. Um, In Matthew 18, the disciples asked the Lord Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, it's always funny how we always ask that kind of question. And we do ask this question. This is a typical question that human nature has a certain expectations when they, when they, uh, when they ask it because there's an answer they feel that needs to, be, needs to come. When we think of the greatness or status, a certain image develops. A figure and a lifestyle emerge. When I say, let us pursue greatness, a certain thought comes to mind which has to do with power and status. Jesus answered this question rather drastically and what appeared irrationally, and it seemed unrealistic. And so in Matthew 18, too, he says this, And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The world pursues the image of the emperor. Christ calls us to pursue the image of the child. <laughs> now, I wish Matthew would have described the faces of the disciples when Jesus had brought the child up and says, pursue, become like children. They're like, What? Everyone is pursuing the image of the emperor, the power, the status, the wealth. If you can't achieve it, then you're a loser, failure, and you're mount to nothing. And if you can't achieve it, then take it, steal it, demand it. In the book of Mark, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, as they're fighting again about, well, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. And so he calls them aside, come on, come over here, a little holy huddle, if you will. In Matthew 8, uh, excuse me, Mark 10, he says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That's what you would expect to happen. Find the boss, I lord it over you. But it is not so, that it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your slave, your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom forever. The image that Christ revealed is far different from the image the world gives. What what Christ is saying is that the image he is revealing is one of love. I will love others. I will serve them. I will be the servant to the world. I will treat them. I will serve them. I will love them. I will care for them. Because you serve out of love. You're not forced to serve. You love because God's great love is in you and you can't help it. In Romans 6, we see the image of Christ revealed. The first thing you have to do is die. Die to self. Whoever you were before Christ is now dead. And your new life, your new identity, your new image begins that day. The life of Christ is now your life. When you die, you're raised up from the dead to walk in the newness of life. 
This is the promise that we celebrate. What is the newness of life? Look at verse 5. For we have become united with Him. You you are united with Christ. That blows my mind. (laughs) I'm united with Christ. You're united with Christ. That is a promise to celebrate. What is this newness of life? United with Christ. You're united with Christ. This connection is the other promise given to us. Your life is now hidden in Christ. Your life will reveal the person of Christ. You went to the cross with Christ and died. You went to the tomb and you were raised. You now have a new life. This old self has been removed. You are now no longer the slave to sin. This, this is another promise given. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are now free from the tyrant of sin. Because you have died and risen with Christ, you will now live with Christ. Another promise. Now that Christ has died and has risen, he will never die again. He doesn't need to. He already accomplished what he needed to do. Consequently, as you are now dead to sin, you are now alive to God. Another promise. As you read these verses, you see the image and identity that you, that, that you once pursued is now gone and removed. You now have a new identity a new image. The image is Christ. The, Christ is the one you, who came not to be served, but to serve. And if there's anyone that ever deserved to be served, it was him. But instead, he came to serve. The creator of heaven and earth came to serve us. As you read these verses, you see that image and identity that he's given to you. God has removed the old image, the image of the world, And now you pursue the true image, the one that brings life and hope. United with him. My old self crucified. My new life hidden in God. Alive to God. Pursue that image. Number two, act in the manner of Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. When you recognize what image you're pursuing, then you will, no- you will know what direction you have to go. You know what path you will follow. The image is your identity. Your identity is now in Christ. Christ will now live his life out in you and through you. Your your life in Christ will reveal your calling. What is your calling? Don Carson said, Some years ago we had a a lot of denominational leaders visit the the campus where he, he, he had taught. In one meeting with the faculty, we went around the room and asked this diverse group about their call to the ministry. Some of them had extraordinary experiences. For others, it had been fairly cerebral thing. But as I listened to the denominational leaders of then and then faculty, do you know what I found in common without a single exception? Each one of them would speak of a text of Scripture that had just leapt up the pages and grabbed them by the throat and wouldn't let go. The power of God's Word drew them out of who they were and compelled them in to what God called them to do. What was common, he continues on, in all of them was a profound, unswerving, immutable passion that believed the gospel is so central in all of human life 
that nothing in comparison with its proclamation is worth doing. Is this our calling and unshakable reliance on the Holy Gospel that we know will transform the sinner? That we recognize the power of the Gospel? That we will do all we can to make it known. So number one, sin is not our calling. Sin was once our calling. It was in our DNA. We had no ability to say no. We had no strength to overcome. Our rebellion against God is true and our sinful nature is strong. Paul wrote, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust. The word reign means it is king and lord. It sits on the throne of your heart and dictates your thoughts, feelings, and motives. It places an image within you to follow and an identity to pursue. Before Christ, you had no way to remove the tyrant of sin in your life. And it is a tyrant. Our sinful desires are deceitful. The enemy is able to effectively uh, lie to you. But remember this. The enemy has no authority. Because it says in Matthew, all authority has been given to me, says Christ. Christ has all authority. Because of Christ, we can now remove sin as Lord and welcome Christ to sit on the throne of our heart. We can now reject what sin offers. We can now say, my body is an instrument of God's righteousness and not sin's selfishness. My heart belongs to Christ and I will not to my, I will not give allegiance to my selfish nature. I have a new Lord, and His name is Jesus, and I give my life and my body to Him. I now, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. Instead, God's love fills my heart, and I'm driven to serve those around me because His love is so great. I'm driven by the power of God's amazing love to walk in the truth of God's character I am free. God is the freest being in the universe. He does whatever he pleases, says the psalmist in 115. And what does God do? He loves. He loves. Nothing constrains God. Nothing stops him. He does what he pleases, and he loves. He is free to love. We now, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can now love. Love is the righteousness of God. Sin is not God's love, but selfish love. Sin is counterfeit goodness. It is a lie. There is no love in sin other than self. That is why our world is in chaos. Division abounds. Immorality is celebrated and popular. It's interesting. The further you move God away and push him out, the more reality becomes unreality. And we don't know what is the rules. Who's this? What's that? What's going on here? Division abounds. Immorality is celebrated and popular. Identity is marred. Wrong image is pursued. While all this is happening, people are dying. They're left out. They're alienated. They're crushed. They're pushed away. When you pursue the image of the emperor, only a few find it. Only a few attain it. But if you pursue the image of God that he has given you, you will find it. You'll live it out. And you'll bring healing to the people around you. So pursue that image. Number three, live in the freedom of Christ. Let's look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, 
you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beautiful words. Our human nature is such that when you hear God's grace, oh, I receive grace, I receive forgiveness, we create a loophole. God's grace allows me to keep sinning. Paul knows that people will see this so-called loophole. It's not a loophole, but it's something that we try to create. If you want to keep on sinning, you have the ability. You're more than capable of doing that. There's nothing you need to do to just live your normal, human, selfish, sinful nature life based on neglecting God's word, and you can keep doing that. However, if you want to be free from sin, free from its tyranny, free from its enslavement, you need Christ. When it, when it comes to sinning, I need no help. I can do that very well by myself. But if I want the righteousness of God, the image of God, I need supernatural help. I need the Holy Spirit's strength. I need resurrected Christ's power to dethrone the master called sin, I need an army. I need someone beside myself, for what I need is not in me, only in Christ. You know, Paul is really making it simple. Did I say you're free to obey Christ as Lord? Yeah. Point number one. (laughs) Sorry about that. You're free to obey Christ as Lord. There you go. I thought I was going to come to point two, and I'm going, wait a minute. I don't think I made point two. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it, it, when you read these verses here in, in Romans 6, it's like he's grabbing your head and saying, let me speak to you directly. <laughs> let me make it simple, like I'm speaking to a five-year-old here. When you sin, you're a slave to sin. And all that it comes with, death. When you die to sin, you're free from sin. You become a slave to righteousness. Is that clear? I mean, that's what he's trying to do. He's like, let me make this clear. Sin is bad. Righteousness good. Sin is the wrong image. Christ is the true image. Sin leads to lawlessness, which is the chaos and the destruction and death. Righteousness leads to life. There's only death in sin and only life in Christ. Number two, pick the victor. You know, I see in this chapter, it's like a boxing match, similar to what you read in the book of Revelation. For example, in this corner is the dragon weighing the size of a planet with many heads, with sharp teeth, breathing fire, filled with hate, anger, and seemingly invincible power. 
In the other corner, standing at four feet, six inches tall, maybe weighing a 200 pounds, is the lamb who was slain. And you look at this and say, this is like TCU playing Georgia all over again. What in the world? The dragon will snatch that lamb up and be done in two seconds. You know, but in the Bible, nations or beasts that appear invincible are never invincible. Nimrod lost, the Nephilim were drowned, Goliath beaten, Babylon overrun, the dragon kicked out. Every invincible person, beast or kingdom, will never produce the kingdom God wants. It will only produce tyranny and death. But look at the lamb. When you look at the lamb, no one really fears a lamb. You think, oh, a soft, cuddly lamb. They don't pose a threat. But this lamb is different. This lamb is slain, but alive. This means that this lamb has died, but death no longer is its identity. He did die, but now he lives. That means the dragon can't touch him. That means the dragon can't defeat him. It can't kill him or overcome him. The dragon can only produce death. But the lamb produces life. The world looks at the dragon and sees the power and lusts after it. It is the image the sinful nature desires. Yes, I want that. But it only appears invincible. It cannot maintain it. Then you look at the lamb, the one who was slain, who has died but now lives. Death cannot stop the lamb. In this passage, there are two paths, sin or righteousness. Sin pursues the image of the dragon and the defeated dragon. The lamb pursues righteousness and life. The lamb leads to sanctification, which is holiness, love, and life. The lamb is life. Which image are you pursuing? As for me and my house, and I hope we can say this together, as for me and my house, we will pursue the lamb. Let's pray. Father God, you're amazing, holy, good, faithful, and true. Thank you for the Lamb, for he has defeated the dragon. And I praise you for Christ our Lord, who has saved us. May we love you and follow you each step of the way. I pray for any person here struggling with anything, maybe sin, Maybe it's identity. Maybe they've doubted your love. Regardless, may they find their hope and strength in you. May they know their blessings are found in you. May they know their joy is found in you.